You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Former presidential candidate and chair of the Senate Antitrust Subcommittee, Senator Amy Klobuchar, joins Washington Post Live to discuss her new book, Antitrust, taking on monopoly power from the gilded age to the digital age. Klobuchar will also discuss the Democrats' plans for an election overhaul and the battle for the Biden agenda. Let's listen. Good afternoon. I'm Karen Tumulty. I'm a political columnist here at the Washington Post, and I want to thank you for joining us today on Washington Post Live, where our guest is Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar, a former presidential candidate who, by virtue of her position as chairman of the Senate Rules Committee, is finding herself at the forefront of a lot of the most important topics that are roiling Washington today. Welcome, Senator Klobuchar. That's a nice way of saying it, Karen. Uh, It's great to be on, roiling my way in, uh, and I'm happy to be on with you. And by the way, congratulations on your great book on Nancy Reagan. That's pretty cool. Thank you. I plan on doing it this summer, so thanks. Well, we will also be discussing your new book, Um, but I do want to ask you about Tomorrow is going to mark the one-year anniversary of George Floyd's death in Minneapolis, your hometown, a county where you were once the lead prosecutor and, you know, where you now are the senior senator. Could you talk a little bit about where the country finds itself now a year after George Floyd's death and the subsequent verdict, the subsequent guilty verdict against the police officer who um, who killed him. Yes. Well, first of all, um, Keith Ellison and his team did just this incredible job uh, with that case. And it was a moment of redemption. And I think part of what happened um, as we look back at the horrible murder of George Floyd, um, part of what happened there and the reason the case worked um, was that the facts were really clear, but also um, it was um, the fact that these witnesses, and they were really our voices, the voices of so many people who testified and said they were shouldering this burden for too long, that they had woken up at night saying, how could I have done something differently? How could I have saved George Floyd's life? Um, And that brings it really to where we are now, because while the verdict uh, was, as I said, redemptive, you can't confuse accountability with justice. And justice to me would be passing the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. It would be making changes around the country. Uh, So what happened to him and his family who were there with us in Minnesota uh, this weekend, that this never happens again. So where do things stand right now with the, with the George Floyd Act? What what are the prospects for for working out something that can actually get through Congress? Senator Booker has been working around the clock on this, uh, negotiating with Tim Scott and other Republicans. That's a really important part of this because uh, we'd like to get this done and we want to get it done as soon as possible. And for me, some of the most important provisions are 
the chokehold provision. That's a bill that Senator Tina Smith and I authored um, to ban chokeholds. It's making sure the records are available so that a lot of time what happens is police officers that get in trouble change jurisdiction and there's no paper trail of what happened. Um, looking at the standard of force and changing that. There's a lot of things that we can do. And um, we have to remember there's a lot of good police officers out there. You know, you, uh, you, I was watching the lead into this show with the inauguration. Uh, we all know those police officers that put their lives to the line for us, on the line for us on that day and two weeks earlier on January 6th. And so we have to remember that as well, but we've got to put standards in place uh, that work to stop to stop what's been happening with innocent people like Dante Wright in my own state. You know, all he was doing was driving with a, an expired tab and he ends up shot and killed um, simply for having an expired tab. That, that shouldn't be happening in America. So the Washington Post has a front page story today about Minneapolis. And I think a lot of the dynamics that you see going on in your own hometown are playing out in cities across the country. But yes, there there is a raging debate over police reform and what direction it should take. A lot of mistrust still in the minority community, but also crime is up and a third of the police force has either announced either has left or announced that they are leaving. Um, where is all of this taking Minneapolis? Because like I said, I think this is a, this is a situation that is playing itself out in a lot of cities across the country right now. It is, and that's important to note because that's one of the reasons I think we need a federal law. I think that would help if we set some standards federally. Uh, the governor and the state have done some things and they're trying to do more, the governor is, uh, but I think that having a federal law would be really important. Um, as far as the Minneapolis police, you know, they are now under uh, federal authority uh, with the investigation that was just launched, something that I had asked for um, along with several others in our delegation um, uh, nearly a year ago. Um, so that is happening at the same time. And in all police departments, not just in Minneapolis, um, we're, there are recruiting issues and we need to step up recruiting and we need to get more people and have the police force reflect the community that they serve. And I truly believe one of the things that we need to do is set these some standards and make some changes to build trust in the community. And I think once that is settles out, it will actually be easier to recruit people because right now it just feels like things are so in flux and there's so much distrust. And I think passing police reform would in the long haul, not only make a safer community, but would set clear rules of the roads for officers. And I think it would eventually lead to a more steady workforce. So you mentioned the inauguration, which you were essentially running by virtue of being chairman of, of the Rules Committee. The President Biden's inauguration was conducted under the shadow of what happened on January 6th. Last week, we saw the House pass legislation to establish an independent commission. We saw 15 Republicans break ranks to vote with the Democrats on that. And, and there are probably seven or eight Republican votes in the United States Senate as well. And yet Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell has said 
that he would oppose a similar piece of legislation in the Senate. Does that mean it is dead? And if so, what's the fallback here? Uh, how do we get some sort of independent accounting for what happened in the United States Capitol that day? And how do we make sure it doesn't happen again? Well, I hope the commission is not dead, given that 35 Republicans voted for it. Um, I think it's really important to do that deep dive, to spend the time getting the information. And it was certainly helpful after 9-11 uh, to have that kind of uh, reckoning and accountability uh, that we need here. Um, while that's going on, and I know we're going to have a vote on this soon, and I seem so close to getting it done, uh, we have had another investigation that's bipartisan with Senator Blunt, who is actually the chair of the Rules Committee uh, leading into the inauguration, and he and I worked together on the inauguration. So Roy and Rob Portman and Gary Peters and I combined our two committees and did some very public hearings on this and have followed up with uh, many interviews of different key witnesses. So we're actually putting our report out as well, but that's different than the 9-11 Commission. Our report is focused on what changes can we make immediately to the way the police, Capitol Police Board is structured, um, to the way uh, we have um, intelligence sharing and what's happening with the Defense Department, uh, because we felt it was important to get something out but relatively quickly so that decisions can be made. So that rather lengthy report is coming out. But I don't think that that is a substitute for a 9-11 type style commission. So what do you make of Senator McConnell's position here? Because the day before the House voted on this legislation, he was he seemed to be sort of open-minded about the idea of a commission. Then all of a sudden he came out against it. Um, is it just that it is likely to make former President Trump look bad, or, or what is the real the real issue here? No, it really doesn't make sense to me because um, I guess he'll, by the way, to answer the question, you'd have to ask him, which means he'll have to write a book on antitrust and then come on your show. Okay. Um, but I think in the end, um, we were united that January sixth day, with a few exceptions of you know eight members that voted the other way, eight or nine. Uh, but Mitch McConnell gave a really heartfelt speech about supporting the Electoral College. And um, Roy and I were the last ones there at 4 a.m. walking through broken glass with you know, spray paint on the walls as we headed to the House uh, where Speaker Pelosi and with Mike Pence with us went over there and uh, got it done. We finished our job. And that was very important, I know, to Senator McConnell as well as, of course, Leader Schumer. We got that done. And to me, the follow up of that is figuring out everything you need to know so it doesn't happen again. And that leads me to the work we're doing, the bipartisan work in the Senate, which I can't underestimate how important that is, supported by both leaders uh, with our with uh, Roy and Gary and uh, Rob Portman. But it also you need that deep dive of a 9-11 style commission to really interview all of the witnesses and have the staff to do it. And uh, the subpoena power and the like. And we'll continue to do our work. We'll get our report out, but this is best served by a 9-11 style commission. 
So let's talk about your book. The only the only thing I might quibble with here is your subtitle, which is it's the title is Antitrust, Taking on Monopoly Power from the Gilded Age to the Digital Age. In fact, you take us back farther than that. You look at the British monarchy, you look at the debates that were going on between Madison and Jefferson at the founding of this country and this assumption that the founders had that our democratic institutions would be strong enough to, to overcome monopoly power, which turned out to be not a good calculation here. Could you talk a little bit about why you decided to write this book and how you managed to write it uh, in the middle of running for president? Well, when you said you were quibbling with the title, I thought you would note, uh, given your following of the presidential campaign in the primary, uh, that my uh, my rivalry with Pete, which isn't real, we're actually quite good friends, continues as the book he put out this fall was called Trust, and my book is called Antitrust. Um, but in any case, I wanted to write this book because I think this issue has been boiling up now for decades. And if you wonder why your cable rates are so high or why we don't have proper privacy protections on social media platforms or um, why it, uh, you don't get the good deal that you wanted to get on travel or the like, you got to look at antitrust uh, because our country has been basically asleep at the wheel when it comes to antitrust. Whereas in past decades and past centuries, actually, this was a major cause to reduce income inequality, uh, to make it easier for innovation and for new ideas and for small businesses. Uh, monopolies stand in the way of that. And it isn't to say that monopolies don't have good ideas and give us great things. There's all kinds of examples of how as they grow, they develop new products. It's just at a certain point in this country. And I had a front row seat to this when I represented MCI as they took on uh, the Bell operating monopolies um, many, many years ago when I was in private practice. So that's, I got interested because of that. I got interested because of my family history with my grandpa working for monopolists. Uh, his whole life uh, down in the mines, uh, basically not even getting a high school degree because his family needed him. His He grew up, my grandpa grew up in company housing. Um, and I still remember the moment where my mom actually was drove us by the James J. Hill House in St. Paul, one of the great robber barons of that way back time. And of course he was long dead, but she looked at that house and she goes, your grandpa built that house. No, he didn't literally built it. But metaphorically, he did because it was the workers that did it. So all of that added up to my interest in this. I'm the chair of the Senate Antitrust Subcommittee. I love history, which I know you do. And I thought someone's got to take this on and throw in a bunch of cartoons, over 100 of them, and get it out there. And I started it well before the presidential campaign started. Um, and I wrote most of the history at that point, took a break during the presidential. Uh, and then I wrote a lot of the modern day stuff uh, in the weekends and evenings in the last year while I was doing my job as senator and uh, was able to get it done in a very timely moment as we look at the uh, all of the tech issues and the pharma issues and so many monopolies we're seeing right now. I must say, I did find the parts of the book about your own family history and how you as a kid grew up hearing all about Teddy Roosevelt. I found that some of the most moving parts of the book, but I was also struck by really how much of this reformist 
fervor throughout our history really has been rooted in the Midwest. Exactly, Karen. And so that was why I thought mm, I'm the good person to write it. Uh, that all when you go back in time, Teddy Roosevelt, of course, wasn't from the Midwest, but he spent a lot of time in North Dakota hunting um, and had a lot of his political support grounded there. William Jennings Bryant from the Midwest. Um, you have the Granger movement, which was this group of farmers with their pitchforks basically demanding that state legislators and governors and ultimately Washington do something about it because of their input costs, because of the cost of rail, because of uh, the cost of seeds and the like. Uh, and then you had the union movement, of course, coming up against the trusts all over the country, which makes that really poignant point uh, that this is also about wages and workers, because if you don't have um, competitive companies to sell your wares or your skills to, uh, that hurts wages. So that came up predominantly a lot in Chicago with um, the Haymarket riots, with what happened with the Pullman strike, um, and which was, a, of course, a company uh, that run those Pullman cars and hired the African-American uh, porters, bringing it back to what we started with, with George Floyd, the former mayor of St. Paul, or the current mayor of St. Paul, Melvin Carter, who is African-American. I had him testify at the Judiciary Committee uh, about what had happened in Minnesota. And his grandfather had been a Pullman porter. His grandfather had a name, but everyone called him George because they used the name George so the white people wouldn't have to remember their names. And as Melvin said at the hearing, in the end, uh, we are all George. Um, and so all of this milieu of everything from actually uh, civil rights and the NAACP and the farmers groups and the unions really took on these big monopolies of their time. And the Sherman Act was a Republican from Ohio. Teddy Roosevelt comes in, takes that bill 10 years or so after it passes and finally becomes a trust buster in the White House, handing it over to Taft and then to Woodrow Wilson. And all of them were uh, very aggressive about antitrust enforcement. And then after that, it became a bit of a period of just stagnancy, some of it because of wars, and that's more understandable, uh, but then some of it um, because people didn't want the laws enforced until you get to AT&T and that time period, which was probably the heyday of antitrust, uh, where, and to me, AT&T is a great example of our time, broke up the company, company gets stronger by their own chairman's words. You've got a lower long distance rate and a whole incredible cell phone industry, um, which at the before they broke them up was about, the cell phones were about the size of Gordon Gecko's briefcase in the movie Wall Street. So, you know, you saw at this transition with the antitrust laws. But it's also striking that your book comes out at about the same time that a book, book on sort of a similar subject by another Midwestern Senator, Josh Hawley, who is very far to the right and with whom you probably share very little. His book does not have the historic sweep that yours does. And it seems far more um, focused on t big tech. But could you mm -hmm. talk a little bit about what this moment is politically? Because the failures that you talk about throughout our history have been, number one, failures because the legislation, the laws weren't there, the laws had big loopholes, but also it was a failure on the part of 
Congress and the executive to sort of focus and prioritize monopoly power. So what does this say about this moment? Is there the possibility that that this issue can really come to the forefront? I think so. And we just had an example of that just two weeks ago when my bill with Senator Grassley, uh, which is to change how the merger fees work and basically charge some of the smaller deals less, but the bigger deals a lot more dropping the bucket for them when they come before justice or FTC, but it would give over $100 million to those agencies to hire the lawyers they need because you can't take on the biggest companies the world has ever known with Band-Aids and duct tape. And Senator Hawley supported that bill. Uh, it was unanimous when it got through. So that's an example. I've been sitting trying to get that bill done for years now, and it finally got done. I think there is a sea change. Then you get to the next stuff that we have to do, which is harder. It's looking at uh, some of the standards in place. And when you history as a guide, we've changed those standards over the years so that our laws are sophisticated as the people that the antitrust laws are supposed to regulate. Uh, and my concern is if you just wait on the courts who have adopted this Borkian version of the world, which isn't even the original intent of the antitrust laws, that is a true fact. Um, so that's why I guess I'm an originalist when it comes to the antitrust laws. Um, and uh, they've gone off in a direction that's made it harder to bring these cases. So that's why in the book, I make the argument not just about the history, but about the current challenges and how we can get at them on a bipartisan basis by making what are not radical changes to our laws. And one other thing I want to make clear is I was in the private sector. I represented businesses for 15 years. I like capitalism and I want to keep it strong. But capitalism only works, as Adam Smith, the father of capitalism, pointed out, if you do something about what he called the standing army of monopolies. Uh, they are always going to emerge in a capitalist system, and you've got to make sure you have laws in place and ways to check them. We have been let our guard down, and as a result, we have these huge gatekeeper companies. I use the example at the beginning of the book of Pharma, where uh, a case involving one company buying one baby heart drug and then buying the other one, essentially cornering the market and then taking the price up, and I, this is my first antitrust case as a new senator that I knew of, from 85 bucks a treatment to 1600 bucks a treatment. I find out from a pharmacist at Minneapolis Children's Hospital. Uh, from there, a huge lawsuit was launched by the FTC AG's offices in blue and red states. They lost in court. They lost because of the state of our laws. And when little infants and their parents and children's hospitals can't win, we have a real problem with our laws. Well, I want to ask you in the time we have left about another couple of issues where you are on the on the front lines. Uh, one is electoral reform. Uh, what we see across the country is Republican state legislatures, one after another, looking at that legislation within their states that would make it harder for people to vote. Um, and at the same time, you are one of the leading proponents of the For the People Act. Uh, it, so what are the prospects here? I mean, you've got one set of one dynamic going on out in the states. This bill does appear to be stalled, at least for now, in Congress. What? Where are we on electoral reform and how how are we going to sort of rebuild a lot of people's trust 
in our elections and in our whole democratic system. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't count out this bill, Karen, uh, because what you're seeing across the country as hundreds of bills being introduced, a number of notable ones passed in Georgia and in Florida with another on the way in Texas that actually make it harder for people to vote. People don't like that. As Reverend Warnock said in his maiden floor speech, he said, what this is all about is some people don't want some people to vote. That has been recognized by major corporations who are pushing back. That has been recognized from independents, uh, Republicans and Democrats. That was a lot of what was going on in the last election in Georgia when uh, President Trump uh, was basically uh, trying to uh, basically try to blow up their election when in fact it had been a well-administered election by Rep Republicans and he was still questioning it. So what this bill does is set minimum national standards the for the People Act, minimum national standards for voting. It basically puts in place a lot of the reforms that are made that are being tried to taken away in many states, which are things like making sure you can vote by ballot, you don't have to have a notary when you're sitting in a hospital room with the glass between you and a notary just to be able to get an absentee ballot, making sure there's ample drop-off boxes so you don't have one for five million people like they had in Texas in the last election. It would be like putting one in the middle of Bemidji, Minnesota and having our whole state go to the same one. That's about how many people we have in our state. Um, and it has these minimum standards in place. It also does smart things like say, you got to disclose the names of donors uh, for these uh, um, big entities that are playing in our politics and basically flooding in dark money. And it's got some ethics provisions in there, which I think is great. I don't know why the Supreme Court is the only court in the federal uh, circuits that doesn't have ethics rules in place, but they don't have one. And we ask the judicial conference to come up with a set of rules for them. Um, so that's why I think the bill is so important. We haven't done stuff on ethics for decades. It would get at all these problems that are cropping up and put minimum standards in place. Um, and so, yes, it tied in the committee, big surprise on partisan grounds. However, we got six or seven uh, provisions in that were bipartisan, that were important. Uh, there's about nine provisions in the bill, major ones that were already bipartisan to begin with. And most importantly, Democrats, Republicans, and independents overwhelmingly support these reforms. In polls showing 70, 80, 85% of them want to be able to vote safely by mail. They don't want to have their democracy ruled by big money and outside politics and billionaires. Um, so that's why I think there's a chance on this bill. And so just stay tuned because uh, we're going to be bringing it to the floor. The rules allow Senator Schumer to do that once I got the tied vote out of the committee. And is there any way to get this thing passed without at least suspending the filibuster? Well, uh, first of all, you always try to go to bipartisan first. Let's see if we have any hope there. Uh, but second of all, you know, Senator Manchin has said that he's open to a standing filibuster, which would require the other side to actually be there and try to explain uh, why they don't want to make it easier for people to vote, why they don't want to be able to have some very clear standards for vote by mail, uh, why they don't want to, uh, you know, make it easier so you don't have to get notary publics in just to get your ballot. I think that's going to be really tough to do. And I'm glad he's open to that. So that is obviously one way we could proceed. Well, in the few minutes we have left, I'd also like to talk to you about President Biden's agenda and, of course, the big 
item on it is this infrastructure bill where uh, negotiations are underway. I know this is a subject close at home to you. It was as your as your first year as a senator, uh, Minneapolis had a catastrophic bridge collapse that killed 13 people. What are the chances? I mean, right now, the two, President, the White House is saying they want this to be done with bipartisan support. There are negotiations underway, but the Republican counteroffer is really just so far away from both the numbers that the Biden administration wants, but also the definition, how broad, what, what goes into infrastructure. Are we going to see a bill this year? I think we will, and there's many ways to get there, but his first priority, which is also mine, uh, is to try to do this on a bipartisan basis. Um, and, you know, this is one of the things I always remember Congressman Oberstar, who was one of my mentors way back, he's no longer with us, would always say there's no such thing as a Democratic bridge or a Republican bridge. And as you mentioned uh, about that bridge in Minnesota, I think the next day I said, a bridge just doesn't fall down in the middle of America, but when it does, we rebuild it. And Joe Biden is basically taking the infrastructure of the whole country and doing the same thing. I lead the bill with Representative Clyburn on broadband. Uh, there's not that much difference between what Democrats and Republicans want to do, even on their proposal when it comes to broadband. Uh, that cries out for a bipartisan agreement. So I would give this time. The negotiations, of course, one side or the other says, no, that's we won't do that. That's not right. But the negotiations are continuing to go forward. If that doesn't work, there is always reconciliation, which, as you know, we used with that 51 vote margin to pass the very successful and very popular America Rescue Plan, uh, which really helped to put our economy in a steady place and get the money we needed out there for vaccine distribution and for um, the kind of production we needed to help our country get its footing again. And we're in the middle of it right now. Uh, people are feeling much more optimistic about what's going on. And we use that archaic procedure called reconciliation to do that, and we could do it again. So how are you you feeling about the whole prospects for bipartisanship, for bringing the country together? That was the promise that President Biden made in his inaugural address. And yet it seems like you know, that things are as divided, if not more divided than ever. So I guess as a final question, are you, are you feeling optimistic or, you know, it is was this all just a complete miscalculation of where our politics are today? Absolutely not, Karen. I have Hubert Humphrey's desk in the Senate chamber, the happy warrior, and that's how I look at things. And let me give you some examples. Just last Thursday, I was at the White House for the signing of the Asian hate crime bill, meeting a, a tremendous challenge of our time. That was a bipartisan bill uh, that was worked through the process in a good way. The infrastructure negotiations are real. And Joe Biden, in addition to that, has support of Democrats, Republicans, and independents, as I just pointed out, for the American Rescue Plan across the country. So you have the Congress, which can be frustrating. No one knows better than me. Um, but you also have the people out there that respect him for his decency and respect him because he's trying to get things done. 
Um, I, I, I think it's tremendous what he and Kamala have gotten done so far. And I think it's tremendous that people don't have to wake up every Saturday morning and wonder what mean tweet am I going to have to respond to. They can go eat breakfast or you don't go to bed, as one high school kid told me at the end of Trump. Oh, I can go to sleep now and I don't have to worry how to, about how to run the country. This doesn't mean we don't have challenges that are unmet, certainly climate change, immigration reform, uh, the work that we need to do to make education and healthcare more affordable. But at the same time, we have come so far from where we were back on January 6th as a mad mob of insurrectionists, so white supremacists invaded the Capitol and thought they could literally take over the government. We have moved forward as a country and it's never gonna be pretty but I bet on America anytime. Well, Senator Klobuchar, thank you so much for being with us today. I learned so much uh, from your book, though I have to admit it may be a while before I get through all those end notes that your husband apparently should. My husband wrote them and I kept them all in for the good of our marriage, but, and they're very interesting. They're very interesting. One of them to understand the book and to believe we need to follow the guideposts at the end of the 25 ideas to get something done on antitrust. So thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you for being with us today at Washington Post Live. We're not even done yet today. We'd like you to join us at five o'clock with actress Mila Kunis, director Rodrigo Garcia, and, and our own Eli Saslow to talk about the trauma of addiction. And be sure to come back to WashingtonPostLive.com to find out what other programs we have coming your way. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.